the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and of Judah and Simon. And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. Please take your seats. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. The song we sang just said, holy, you are holy. I was just loving that. I was just in, the, in over there just thinking about um, Revelations chapter 4. It's where, where I intend to pick up our teaching when we resume our Bible study. And I was just thinking about that moment where the four and twenty elders are around the throne and they are casting their crowns before Christ as a as a kind of representation of their worship and submission to him. They cast down the things that are, to them, that should be most precious. I, I don't know if you've seen the Queen's uh, crown, the, the Queen of England, have you seen her crown? It is amazing. It has diamonds probably from just about every continent on the planet. It has beautifully inlaid with gold and silver. It's gorgeous. This thing is held in the in a temperature-controlled room, yes, waiting only for her head alone. Yes, sir. No one else is allowed to, only one or two people are allowed to touch the thing, and only one person is allowed to have it on their head. I can imagine probably Charles is saying to himself, I can't wait for the day where that crown becomes mine, right? Where he says, Queen Elizabeth, I get to wear that thing. But these four and 20 elders who had these crowns thought it more worthy to throw. Like when you understand somebody's authority, you say the thing, little authority I have, I'm just giving that up. Like when you really understand what it is to love somebody, the thing that you thought was precious isn't that precious anymore. Like I remember all the things that I thought was me, when I met my wife, I said, that actually isn't that important to me anymore. Like you were willing to just go and do backflips if that is what was necessary because that was precious to you. The crown was supposed to be precious to them, but as soon as they saw the Christ on his throne, they realized it wasn't that special anymore. I'm wondering what things in our lives shouldn't be as special as we think they should be right now. What things now, we, when we are in relationship with Christ, we should cast down and throw, throw away and say, it's not that special. I remember Paul said in, in the Corinthians, I believe it is, he says, the things that were gained for me, the things that were positive for me, I count it loss. <laughs> he even went as far as to say, like this guy was taught by the very best teachers Judaism had to offer. And he said, I count all that teaching, all that knowledge, all that information dung. He went all the way there. Like, it's one thing to cast down your, your crown. Paul was saying, I think the things that I have are dung compared to what I have in Christ. Isn't that really understanding value? 
I don't know about you, when I, I go to the art museums a lot, and I'm going to be honest with you, the things I think are good are at the back of the museum, and the things they think are good are at the front. And I don't necessarily understand what they think is precious versus what I think is precious. Like, I, I go to some of these paintings, I say, I'd spend at least $200 on that, only to realize that somebody else has spent millions on it because it's precious to them, right? I'd say, yeah, 250 if you were pushing me, right? But they've spent millions. The thing that is valuable, I've got to recognize the things that are really valuable. My relationship with Christ is really valuable. I understand the necessity, the necessity of a job and the necessity of, of having all these relationships I have and all these material things, but when I really compare it correctly, my job should be at the back of the museum and my relationship with Christ should be right at the front. That's the precious thing. That's the important thing. Don't get it twisted, don't get it upset, don't get mad. I want to put the thing that is most precious to me right at the center of my life, right at the center of the museum. When you go into a museum of natural history, there's one in, in Ohio, they have, a, uh, have one in Natural History Museum in Ohio. What they usually do is um, to get you to come and to pull you in, they have their most important artifact, whether it's a Tyrannosaurus Rex bones or, or some, you know, I don't know all the dinosaurs' names, but they have the most important one right at the, in the middle with the most space around it so people can enjoy that exhibit. They give it space. They, give, they let you go all around it. They want you to see every bit of it. And I'm wondering sometimes if we need to do that with our relationship. Put it right in the middle. Give it the most space. Push everything else out. You want to see something else? You go find it. But if you want to see the most important thing, we put that in the middle. Amen? Let's reorient our lives to put Christ as the center of our lives. I'm so grateful to be with you all. So grateful to see your faces. It's giving me energy. I'm so grateful um, because the Lord is good and kind to us. And we should never take for granted this opportunity we have. Um, I remember when we were young and we used to get the opportunity to, to go to church um, and you know when you're in the middle of it you think goodness me. But when you get older, you realize, I see why I needed to be pulled in that direction. Like I needed that. Like every once in a while, I'd be like, okay, okay. Uh, does it need all of that? And you realize when you get older, it absolutely does. Oh, it's just me then, right? It was just me, it was just me, right? But then you, re you go through half a thing, and you realize why your mom and dad were all the way talking about Jesus every single moment that they had because you realize that they needed something to help them, right? Your parents do such a good job and the guardians you have and the people who raised you and do such a good job of shielding you from all the worst thing that you think everything is peaches and cream. Only to experience life for the first time and realize, wow, I could do with some help about here. And that's what Jesus is to me. He's my help. He's the thing that I go to, he's the person that I go to when there's no one else there. Amen. So we've been talking these last few weeks about, um, about trust, about what it is to trust. 
And we've been talking about and focusing on trusting in the Lord. And in fact, last week, um, the week before last, we talked about this idea of there being an open door. But frankly, if you don't know that the door's open, and more importantly, you don't trust what's on the other side of it, you don't tend to go towards it. So I kind of, kind of framed the whole sermon around this idea that often an open door, but you need to have an open mind to go through the open door. And having that mindset means that you need to be able to trust in the Lord, right? And I read that scripture to you in last week in Mark chapter 5. Mark 5, I read that scripture last week. And if you note that scripture was just packed, I told you it was one of my favorites, and I'm, and I'm convinced that it is one of my favorites. However, this week, one of my favorites is now Mark 6. <laughs> right? So every week I get, I've got a new favorite, and that's fine with me. That's fine with me. And I realized there was something connecting Mark chapter 5 to Mark chapter 6 that I'd kind of missed before. Mark chapter 5 is packed with some of the most amazing miracles that you can imagine. Mark chapter 5 is filled with um, moments of genuine power and authority of Christ meet it out on the people of God. People who have sought him and sought him out and tried to get close to him. Mark chapter 5 starts with Jesus standing, getting off a boat and somebody being tormented by what is described as an unclean spirit. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. This particular unclean spirit has tormented this guy so horribly, wounded him so viciously that all he can do is hang around around tombs. He hangs around tombs and the people have tried to constrain him on multiple occasions because he hurts himself consistently and continually. So as an act of mercy, they try to hold him down with fetters and ropes. And he is unable to be held in place. He is absolutely unable to be held. He's, he has some kind of strength that makes him unrestrainable. He breaks out of the ropes, he breaks out of the chains, he's unrestrainable. But every time he breaks loose, what does he do? He doesn't go home, he hangs around the tombs. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. He hangs around the things that are dead. dead. Yes, sir. He hangs around those things that have gone. I don't know if your past has ever come up <laughs> and haunted you in the present day. Like something you've said, something you've done, something you know you shouldn't have said or something you know you shouldn't have been a part of and it comes back up and sits in the present moment and in sitting in the present moment, it creates that space that you've left in your past. That thing that was dead in your life just seconds ago, that things that you know you're not gonna go back to is now taking up headspace today. This man is stuck in the dead things. And sometimes that happens to us, we get stuck on dead things. Our memory kind of pushes us back into things that are unchangeable, unfixable, they're gone. They're dead. But we're hanging around tombs in our mind that should be dead. This man is stuck in the past, he's stuck in these tombs, he's stuck in his moment and he's being tortured. What I love about Mark when he talks about this man is that he doesn't focus on the spirit. I know we talk about Jesus casting them out, but then if you look at Mark, he talks about how his entire person changes because of the presence of Jesus. Let me actually go there. I wasn't planning to, but let me just go there because I want to show you something really important. Um, and um, verse one, I'll start at verse one because I want to just get this into your, into your mind so you understand where I'm coming from. And they came over unto the other side of the sea, into the country 
of Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him, untamable. Couldn't make him have peace. That's why sometimes we have to be careful about the things that we center in our lives, because they will take away your peace. This spirits, this multiple spirits job was to take away this man's entire peace. You can imagine being related to this guy, what it would have meant to see him in this state, what it would have meant to see him untamable, being unable to rest night and day in constant torment. We often focus on the spirit side of this, and I know because it's sensational, but I need you to focus for a second on the human side of this. That somebody is subject to this type of torture. And then Jesus isn't concerned with the spirit, he's concerned with the man. And I need you to focus on this for a moment because your problem seemed like it's the, the whole universe. But Jesus isn't concerned with your problem. He can push that aside any time. He's concerned with you. Let me re- keep reading. Let me keep reading. For he said unto him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. That's verse 8. And he asked him, what is thy name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding, and all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000, and were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to, to see what it is that was done. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid. Look at what's happened. The man who was under this torturous influence is now free. And he's sitting there in his right mind, well. <laughs> That's what the whole point of this encounter was, is to get this man out of his insane mind into a sane mind by being in the presence of Jesus. He's sitting there for the first time in who knows how long, and he's got clothes on. He's no longer raving and shouting and going on because of what the Lord has done for him. He's no longer tortured by that spirit who's making him sit in tombs. He's now sitting with Jesus. But what's amazing about this sitting with Jesus is that his deliverance has made other people completely afraid. Like they're seeing what Jesus can do and it's a positive thing but they're afraid. And it it sits in well with my idea of what does trust look like and what are you trusting in? What does trust look like for you and what are you really trusting in? 
Like there are some things that are very, very helpful in the world. Your car is reliable probably. You probably turned it on three straight years and never had a problem with it, right? You've never had a, so you may say to yourself, tomorrow morning I'm gonna be at work at eight o'clock. You don't even think about the consequences of, of not that car not turning on because it's been so reliable for so long. Like I've woke up every day for the last 40 plus years and the sun has always risen in the east and set in the west. That is something I can rely on. But I'm wondering if sometimes we put our trust in the wrong kinds of things. Let me keep reading here. So let me, let me just keep reading for just a little bit and then I'll keep going. And they saw it and told how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and was also concerning the swine, verse 16. And they began to pray to him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was come into the ship, he that had possessed with the devil prayed that him, that he might be with him. We're still continuing the story of the man who was possessed here. I don't want you to focus on what with the spirits. I know that it's dramatic and it sounds important that the spirits were sent into the swine and the swine went into the sea and what happened with those. But I need you to see what was happening with the man. With this man who was delivered. This man who was under this authority of spirits. He's now being delivered. Look at what happens. He basically speaks to Jesus and says, I want to come with you. But look what Jesus does. He says, how be Jesus suffered him not, but saith unto him, go home to thy friends. Go home. You were living in the past, in the tombs, this whole time. I don't know if you, sometimes, I don't know if some, some parts of your past come up to you like they do for me. Those things that you regret, and, and, and they dominate, you change your attitude, you're in a great mood this a moment ago. Something comes up, oh gosh, now I'm living in those tombs again. And Jesus is saying to you, it's time to come home. Leave those tombs, leave that alone. I've delivered you out of that. It's time to go home. <laughs> get into today. Let's get a vision of what today is and a vision of what tomorrow can be. There is no promise in the past. It's done. It's a tomb. It's not going to change. It's dead. <laughs> but there is a today and there will be a tomorrow. So what does he do? He sends this man home. He delivers him completely to complete his deliverance. He says, I don't need you to come with me. I need you to go home. I need you to be in your home. He says, go with your friends and tell them how great the things the Lord hath done for thee and hath had compassion on thee. We want to focus on the spirit, but I need to focus on the person. What great things he's done for me. So that's how chapter 5 starts off. So I'm, I'm, I'm slow walking this. <laughs> that's how chapter 5 starts, starts off. <laughs> the last part of chapter 5 is even better. <laughs> it starts with verse 21 where he lands um, and when he, Jesus has passed again by ship, so Jesus is kind of doing that work where he's moving and he's, the ships are moving him from one city to another and he moves to the next city and that's where the last week's story picked up. Jarius' daughter is sick. His 12-year-old daughter is sick. And Jesus, he says, come help her. 
he recognizes Jesus and he immediately puts his daughter's care in Jesus' hands. The definition of trust. The thing he loves the most, his daughter. 12-year-old daughter. And while he beckons Jesus, come to my house, come, come heal this. He only realizes that Jesus is a healer but doesn't realize he's the resurrection too. <laughs> There's no rush. There's no rush. He thinks there's a rush, but there's no rush. And while he's going to go heal Jarius' daughter, somebody stops him on the way. And the crowds around him, the crowds touching him, the crowds holding him, the child, and Caesar stops in the middle of the crowd and says, somebody touch me. I mean, somebody touched you. His disciples are saying to themselves, what do you mean somebody touched you? You see how many people, it's like being in a crowd on the way to a football game and saying, somebody touched me. Who did it? Doesn't make sense until you realize that something had happened within the crowd that Jesus wanted to highlight. This woman who had been in an issue of blood for 12 years had reached out in the hope, in the trust that Jesus could deliver her. These two moments were set in the last part of this chapter this 12-year-old girl and this woman with 12 years of misery conspire on this day to both get delivered. Today they're going to both be delivered because Jesus is here. All right? And so Jesus is here. These are miracles upon miracles upon miracles showing his authority, showing his power, showing everything that we know to be true about Jesus but yet we are confronted with chapter 6 which is really really important for us to understand what's going on let me read chapter 6 again because I want you to really settle in on what's just happened we've just had the miracles upon miracles we've had miracles on the way to perform miracles right we've had miracles squared we've had all kinds of miracles <laughs> But then chapter six happens. Jesus goes and he keeps journeying and he goes back home to the people who should technically know him best. He goes back to Nazareth. We know Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes back to his hometown. What is his hometown essentially? And he went out from thence, chapter six, verse one, and came into his own country and his disciples follow him. We know Jesus is there. We know his disciples are there. The only thing that's changed is the where. The only thing that's changed is the who it's going to be performed on. Jesus is there, his disciples is there, but something else has changed. <laughs> We're going to get into this. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things? What is this guy saying? Where did he get this level of knowledge and teaching from? So we know that Jesus is teaching and preaching the same things. These amazing ideas about salvation and the kingdom of God. So he says, from whence are this man these things? And what wisdom is with this which is given unto him? And that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands. Verse 3 is important and pivotal to what I'm going to have to read. They know who Jesus is. 
And in fact, the knowledge of Jesus is working against them in this instance. <laughs> what do they know about him? Verse 3, is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James? And Joseph? And of Judah? And Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. <laughs> What's going, appears to happen in here is somebody who knows where Jesus exactly came from, they know his past, <laughs> they know everything about how he grew up, <laughs> they saw him when he was a little boy, <laughs> they know good and well what his sisters are doing, they know the names of every single one of his brothers. They know his moms, as we say. They know his dad. I know you. I know everything about you. But there's a difference between knowing somebody and trusting somebody. There is a fundamental difference between knowing who they are and trusting who they are. And I think sometimes we get caught up with people who know who Jesus is, but have never trusted him a day in their life. Oh, they don't trust him. They know him. <laughs> they will celebrate with you at Christmas, knowing that he was born in a manger, but they don't trust him. <laughs> That's the difference. These people know Jesus better than the disciples do. They've known him longer. They know his family. They know his mom, they know his dad. They know his brothers and sisters. They knew where he grew up. They knew what his occupation was. <laughs> they knew he was a carpenter, but they don't trust him. The difference between chapter five and chapter six is who are you trusting? Not who you know. Who do you trust? I um, had a friend of mine, one of my best friends. <laughs> we used to um, hang out all the time. Okay? Yes, sir. And I know him very well. Um, the problem, the only problem, we, we get along like a house on fire to this day. The only problem was, if we were going to meet, and we said two o'clock, what I know is, two o'clock isn't the time we're meeting. So I know he said two o'clock, I know he means in his heart of hearts two o'clock. He doesn't mean to not show up at two, but that's exactly what's going to happen. He's not showing up at two. So in my mind, because I know who he is, I have to get ready for the four, for the 3.30, for the three. So I'll block out the whole day till about seven <laughs> because of what I know. <laughs> I know if that's ever happened to you. You know, like, I know who you are, but I can't trust the other, I can't trust you're gonna be there at the time, but I know you're gonna be there. Knowledge and trust are two different things. And we've gotta stop thinking that knowing something is the same as trusting in the thing you know about. Let's go to a couple of scriptures here because I think it's important to kind of back this up. Uh, let's go to, if you can find for me, Minister, uh, James chapter two and verse 18. In James, the, the, the gospel, the, the epistle of James, excuse me, is really about faith and works, what you believe and what you do. 
If you really want to know what somebody believes, look at what they do. Not what they say, that doesn't always do it. You've got to look at what they do. You are what you habitually do. You are what you repeatedly do. There's just no doubt about it. You can say, I, you know, I love the Lord, but if you habitually don't do anything he says, I'm going to challenge that, that you do love him. Let's go, go to the scripture. St. James 2, verse 18. Yeah. Yea, yeah. a man may say, thou hast faith. Yes. And I have works. So somebody might say, I have faith. And somebody might say, well, I'm doing the literal work that that faith is based on. Show me thy faith without thy works. Right. Show me somehow you're believing something and you're not doing it. And what does he say? And I will show thee my faith by my works. So I'll show you exactly what my faith is by the thing that I actually do. It's amazing to me in relationships, people say, well, yeah, I love, I love, I love such and such, I love my wife, I love my husband. And, uh, and saying it is very different from the actuality of it. Saying it is really actually very easy. Like performing on that is a different thing altogether. Let's keep going though, because the next verse is really what I want to, to, to get to. Verse 19, thou believest that there is one God. Wonderful, you've got this belief in your head that there is one God and we believe it. We all believe it in this room. Yes, we believe it for, for folks who don't believe it and we say there is only one God. And what does it go on to say? Thou doest well. Yeah, that's a good start, great start, excellent. You believe there is one God. The devils yep. also believe and tremble. What benefit is it, do you think to the devil to understand that there is in fact one God? No benefit whatsoever. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, sir. Just knowing it isn't enough. You've got to trust that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Like the pr difference between us and what the devils know is that we trust when we say there is one God. We trust what that means and we inform our life with it. The devils aren't going to do that. They just simply know it to be true. We have to know it and do it. Let me just go to another scripture. Let's go to Psalms chapter 125, verses 1 through 2. Psalms 125, 1 through 2. Let's go there really quick. They yes. that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion. So there is a posture for people that are trusting in the Lord. There is a way of being for those who trust in the Lord that isn't like other ways of being. Right? We have to understand that trusting in the Lord is going to create a certain way of being okay. yes, sir. that yes. is going to express itself in a very physical way. In Mark chapter 6, they did not trust in the Lord and they questioned him. They saw how amazing he is. They heard his words, but they didn't trust him at all. The people who saw his miracles, even to the man who was possessed with the unclean spirit, they saw the miracles and it didn't create trust in them by seeing the, the miracles. They asked him to leave. <laughs> Let's keep reading. Let's read that scripture. They that trust in the Lord yeah. shall be as Mount Zion, yes. which cannot be moved, yes. but abideth forever. We're going to be like Mount Zion. Mount Zion was a, a hill that exists round about Jerusalem. And it's where David originally built um, his palace and his temple. And it was supposed to represent the place that would stand for a long time. Yes, sir. And in this psalm, this psalm of degrees, this is um, 
Psalms 125 is a psalm of degrees. The idea behind a psalm of degrees is that it's kind of like a psalm of ascent. As I move closer to Jerusalem, as I go up, because it's on a peak, as I kind of go closer, I'm supposed to sing these parts of the psalm. So as you're going up towards the mountain, up towards Jerusalem, you're saying parts of this psalm. There's multiple songs of degrees. David has, I think, seven, and Solomon has one. And these songs of degrees allow us to kind of imagine being outside worshipping. And you're seeing, and one of the songs that you wanted to sing about while they're outside is to look at the geography of what they're going through and saying, we're going to be like this mountain if we believe on the Lord. He says, we're going to be unmovable just like this mountain. In contrast, chapter 6, we have people that are completely movable. We have people that aren't sure about anything. Mark 5 shows us people that if I can touch the hem of his garment, I'm going to be okay. Chapter 6 is, isn't this, wait a minute, isn't this like Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't he a carpenter? What is it? There's a difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6. And chapter 5 are people like mountains. They're not moving. I've got to touch Jesus' garment so I can be made whole. Let's keep reading here. They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abideth forever. As the mountain, verse 2, are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth. I love, I love this verse. I love these two verses because two things are happening here. Here the Lord is saying, when you trust me, you're going to be that mount in Jerusalem. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And your posture is going to be unmovable and unchangeable. When I get this relationship with you in the second part, he says, I'm going to be like the mountains that are all around Jerusalem. You're going to be a mountain in the middle, and I'm going to be a mountain around you. The relationship that we have when we trust the Lord, not when we know him, but when we trust him means we become unmovable, and he becomes unmovable around us. It's a natural fortification around Jerusalem of mountains that kind of surround it. And you can imagine them kind of moving towards Jerusalem, singing these songs of praise, getting closer and saying, Lord, we're like the mount here, and you're like the mountains around us. Just envisioning the geography of the moment and the beauty of the landscape. And and they're singing to the Lord out in the open saying, Lord, we're gonna be like this mountain. We're gonna keep trusting you. You just continue to be the mountains around us. It's beautiful, isn't it? Symbolism here is so wonderful. The Lord's going to be around me if I can trust him. Psalm Psalm 20, verse 7. I want to show you the other side of what trust looks like. When you trust in the wrong things, when you trust in the things that aren't good, the things that aren't stable, that look good, but aren't good. Psalms 20, verse 7 says, what? trust in chariots. Some of you trust in chariots. And it's important to understand, again, the context of what a chariot is to them. A chariot is the, it's like a tank. It's like a tank in a modern day world. There is nothing going to stop a tank. You have to have, you literally had to create an entire uh, category of weapons for tanks specifically. Like they had to have anti-tank missiles for tank. They were so unstoppable. Chariots didn't have that problem. There was no anti, anti-chariot <laughs> missile they had to deal with. It was an unstoppable uh, war device. 
Some trust in what? Chariots. And what? Some in horses. Horses were another one. Cavalry was, in, was absolutely devastating to people on foot. But keep going. But we will remember the name of the Lord. <laughs> you put your trust in the wrong things. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You put your trust in the car turning on. You put your trust in the east and the west and the sun rising. And I'm saying I'm putting my trust in the name of the Lord. I'm going to put my, sub in, my trust in the unmovable God who's going to completely surround me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. The difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Mark is where you're putting your trust. If you want to trust in the fact that you understand Jesus' genealogy better than anybody else, that's your trust. I'm going to trust in the person of Christ. I'm going to trust in the one who died for me. There's some people who have gone to university and studied this, this Christ for years and still don't trust him. They figured out, I wonder, my dad used to always say that about university and I didn't quite understand what he was said until I compared chapter 5 and chapter 6. I, you can go to university and believe, I don't want to get that in your head, that's not what I'm trying to say here. But I'm trying to say knowing who Christ is and trusting who Christ is are completely different things. Don't get tricked into thinking that just because I know things about Christ, that I actually trust him. We are going to be the church that trusts in him. May the Lord add a blessing to this world in the name of the Lord Jesus.